0: We are continuing this morning in Matthew chapter 18, which um, I've said this over the last couple of weeks. I'll continue to say it. I think Matthew 18 is just a beautiful passage of scripture. It is the most focused area where Jesus talks specifically about the church. And he does it with really an incredible amount of detail. He begins by talking about how, um, as Christians, we're supposed to be concerned about how we interact with baby Christians and how we don't want to do anything to trip them up, to cause them to stumble, to be an obstacle. As a matter of fact, Jesus uses a very colorful illustration when he talks about it. He says it's better for you to have a millstone, a big heavy grinding stone tied around your neck and cast into the deepest ocean than for you to cause someone else to sin. It's a pretty serious responsibility to care for other Christians. He says one of the things that a, a, a Christian does when they are serious about um, honoring God and how they live together is that they're very serious about sin in their own life. And it says that they would rather cut their hand off or poke their eye out if their hand causes them to sin because it's better to go into life with one hand than with two to go to hell. So he talks about this protecting nature that happens from the community that is thoroughly centered on him. And then last week, we talked about not just how we protect people by not causing them to stumble and by setting examples of running away from sin, but he uses this parable of the lost sheep about the guy who has 99 and one is missing and how as God's people, the church is supposed to be a place that looks for those who are lost. And so if you get off the path, We're supposed to be the kind of church that doesn't let you just go on your own little hiking expedition. We come with you to find you and to bring you back. And you sit there and you love this, this focus on little ones and this focus on weak ones. And I go, who doesn't want to be a part of a church like that? That we care about the example that we set. We care enough to look for those who are hurting Jesus says this humble kind of love manifests itself by protecting and by seeking. But now this week, as we continue in chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, he says that this, this love also steps out by correcting, by disciplining. I know you've heard this before. I'm certain that my kids think I'm lying to them when I tell them this. But when discipline time comes... This hurts me. Yeah, you guys have heard this too. Caleb, Caleb, I'm waiting for Caleb one to go. Hey, let's reverse roles and see if you still think that. You know, uh, I wouldn't put it beyond him. This is not a popular thing to talk about about discipline to talk about correction because you know discipline doesn't stop when you turn ten. Discipline doesn't stop when you turn eighteen. Discipline doesn't stop when you turn twenty one. We hope you have learned the lesson of discipline to be self-disciplined. As a country, I don't know, we learned that lesson. And so it's not popular to listen to God tell us that we have a responsibility to correct and to discipline. But let me tell you, the same God who said that we need to protect and the same God who says that we need to flee from sin in our own life, the same God who said that we need to seek the one He's the one who says that we need to correct. And so I think the progression is interesting. Before the Bible ever gets to the point of talking about disciplining an erring brother or sister, it talks about disciplining ourselves. It talks about cutting our hands off and gouging our eyes out if they cause us to sin to be. So serious about sin in ourselves that we can actually not be hypocrites when we start to talk about sin in others. You have to take sin seriously for self-discipline if you want to be serious about discipline in your community. The truth is we won't do a very good job of being our brother's keeper if we don't keep ourselves all that well. It's a serious issue. So when he shared the parable of the story of the lost sheep last week, that's the beginning of the story. We realize, we look around and go, where's Johnny? We've got to find Johnny. So we go and we begin the search Today is the middle of the story. What happens when we find Johnny and we find out that Johnny just didn't wander off? He left intentionally. And then next week, you'll see the end of the story, and the end of the story is beautiful. Jesus tells a parable that's awesome. So you've got to hear all of this in context. So come back next week. Even those of you that are visiting from out of town, come on back. We'd love to have you. So here's how he starts. We're Matthew chapter 18, of verses 15 through 20, just a few quick verses. That's page 695 in the uh, Pew Bible that's there. So if you don't have your own copy of God's Word, pick one up. You can keep that, our gift to you. And um, ultimately, what I have to say is not all that important, but what is in that book is extremely important. So please follow along. There's a listening guide in um, your uh, bulletin uh, to help you uh, take notes if you so desire. We begin in verse 15. Verse <clears> 15. <throat> And uh, basically, Jesus is, in this first point, Jesus is encouraging his community, community towards a loving and godly correcting. Jesus is encouraging. He's saying, yes, do this. My community, people who are called by my name, you need to be involved in a loving and godly correction. Listen to verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Now, a couple things just really quickly to note here. The person at fault, the Bible says, is a brother, not a neighbor. Those are two great classifications. All of humanity is divided into one of those two categories. They are either a brother or a sister in the Lord or they're a neighbor. They're either a fellow believer or they're a non-believer. And the Bible regulates how we are to treat our neighbors. The, the story of the good Samaritan, we're supposed to go out of our way to great cost, pain, and inconvenience to ourselves to care for our neighbor. But the Bible also says, whatever the care is that you give to neighbors, there is a special love and a special commitment for those that are part of the household of faith. Nobody expects me, uh, listen, I'm going to be at VBS, I'm going to have as much fun as the kids are because I love kids. But there'd be something wrong in criminal if I loved your kids the way I love my kids. You get that? I'm allowed to wrestle with my girls. If I wrestle with your girls, call Chris Hefner. (laughs) It's just not right. Now, you expect me to love your kids, but that love that I have for my own family is different. And even though y'all are my faith family, there are things that I should not do with your kids that I have permission that's actually endearing and right for me to do with my kids. And so don't confuse, when the Bible talks about love, Love is distinct and it's complex. It's not simple. We're to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. There's a special love that we're supposed to have for the household of faith. There's a um, a little bit of a controversy, but it's really not a controversy. Verse 15 says, if your brother, your brother, not your neighbor, your brother sins against you. It's a personal issue. It's not, he's USC, you're Clemson. We're talking sin. And as much as you like to think that rooting for the other team is sin, it's not. Um, Y'all are... Never mind, I'm not going to get in college football. Um, This is not just a personal offense. The Bible says it's sin. The issue that is in controversy is there are some uh, older manuscripts that drop out the against you part. So what's that verse sound like if the against you is gone? If your brother sins. Or if your brother sins against you. Is this an issue of personal offense or is it an issue of general admonition? Well, regardless of what happens in verse 18, <clears throat> the truth is, Galatians 6.1, listen to this. I, I didn't put this in your, your notes, but it's a good one. Galatians 6.1, he says, brothers, uh, Paul is addressing the church, he says, brothers, if someone is caught in any, any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit watching out for yourselves so you won't also be tempted. Here's the point whether it is a personal offense, someone has sinned against you personally, or whether it's just someone that you know they're doing something that is not what God wants them to do, the Bible is establishing this principle. Jesus is encouraging a community towards a loving, not a jerkish, a godly, not a godless, correcting. As a matter of fact, the way the Bible phrases this in verse 15, our response, our confronting, uh, correcting a brother who sins is a responsibility and a command. It's not an option. So you know what that means? I hate to tell you this because it's Sunday and y'all dressed up, you smell good, you look good. If a church does not do this and it is a command from Christ, check it, the letters are in red, then you sin. Now, I know like you te- we tend to think of sin as, is like things that we have done, like active sins. We don't think of things that we have not done. How many of you have seen a dear friend who used to have a really tight walk with the Lord? And you kind of watched them get a couple degrees off and a couple degrees off, and now you haven't seen them in church in 20 years. You think that perhaps through your influence of encouraging them to keep the main thing, the main thing there, they might ha- have a testimony now. It's a command. It's not merely allowed. And we've got to remember that the goal, the purpose is redemptive. The goal is to win back, not to win against. If you win against a brother or a sister, you both lose. That's not what the purpose is. It's not a game. Now, the truth is, when we talk about correcting, this is not so controversial. It's practiced more, but still not a ton. Um, I think it was John MacArthur, famous preacher on the West Coast, who said uh, church work would be really awesome if it wasn't for people. Because if you have people, you have problems, you know? Um, Things are going to happen. And how awesome if, like, we just did this, you know? There's a problem. You go and get it taken care of, and then it's done. You're restored. And so we see here uh, that Jesus gives this general encouragement, be loving, and be godly, and get to correcting each other. You need it. Because you know what? You are not not as right as you think you are. That's why God created marriage, you know, so that way you have a wife that kind of helps bring you down, or a spouse that helps bring you down, because we all think, you know, we've got it all together. If everyone was just like me, the world would be perfect. It's not true. It'd be exceptionally boring if the world was just like me, and we would, I'm my family's out of town. I'm trying to do all these home improvement projects. I have destroyed my house. Um, I need to tell my wife to spend another night so I can get stuff done. So, yeah, I don't want the rest of the world to be like me because I need, I need handy friends. So, um, Gil, I'll be calling you this afternoon. So, um, <clears throat> he goes through beyond giving this general encouragement to be loving and godly in our correction. Number two, Jesus explains a very clear process for loving and godly correction. Uh, We'll continue on with verse 16 and 17. He says, But if he won't listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. And if he pays no attention to them, tell the church. But if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like an unbeliever and a tax collector to you. Now we've already seen and commented on the fact that correction begins with private and personal conversation." Guys, that's really important. Why private? It shows respect. It shows humility. Instead of going and getting, like, you know, my cronies and then coming to you and saying, hey, we have a problem with you. I've not marshaled troops to, you know, come against you. I can't, And listen, maybe I misunderstood things, but I'm coming to you and I'm dealing with it. The point is this. Nobody likes to be corrected or rebuked. Nobody does. Like, we could have a class on that, you know, and we could like teach you how to receive it better. Nobody likes it. Nobody likes to be corrected, but you know what? It goes down a little bit easier with a dose of humility. If a person comes to you with a gentle spirit and says, I just got to talk to you about something. That's a huge thing. The thing that's unfortunate is when it comes to a private and personal conversation, it's usually the last thing that we do, not the first. It's usually once things get blown up and out of control, then then we go, man, I got to go talk to them. If you would start that way instead of end that way things might be different but instead it seems like everybody knows your business before you're ever personally approached about a problem and you find out like you've been the subject of somebody's prayer list in their sunday school class for three months and now miss so-and-so is coming in talking to you about whatever and you can go here's the issue <laughs> if you have a problem with someone and you go around talking about people Guess where you have found yourself? In sin. Somebody may have legitimately sinned against you. You're innocent, they're guilty, but if you go around and talk to other people, you are now guilty too. So now there's two people who've got to be confronted about their sin, they've got to be made right. It doesn't get get better if we keep down that pathway. And so the principle is people are to be spoken with, not spoken about. And if the church would practice that one simple discipline, 95% of our problems would disappear. They'd be gone. Husbands and wives, think about it. If you applied this, uh, parents and kids, if you applied this, instead of letting things kind of get big, and then we talk about addressing the elephant in the room. Well, if you never let it get beyond mouse size, then you never have an elephant. Nip it in the bud. And here's the thing. The more you talk about others... You don't, we don't like to talk about the, the kind of sorry side of, of conflict, but the more you talk about others, there is something that happens. It gets easier to talk about them every time you do it. And so, you know, you might be like you get cold chills. You're like, ooh, I shouldn't be doing this, but you do it. And then the next time, it's like there's no hesitation. Yeah, let me tell you about, you know, Nemtude over here, you know. Just texting in church and playing video games. Um, <laughs> sorry, Keith. <Casey. laughs> And so the point is, the more often you do it, the more resentment builds in your heart. And when someone finds out that you've been talking about them, more resentment builds in their heart, and then the reconciliation and the repentance that we're looking for just goes bye-bye. It's gone. It's gone. So we have to love enough to not put an obstacle in front of people. We have to love enough to be serious about our own sin. We have to love enough to seek those who are strength. We've got to love enough to talk privately with people. We have a responsibility with our brothers and sisters in Christ to assume the best and to not talk about them because our calling as Christians is to discipline, not to condemn. Not to condemn. The problem is we live in a world that any discipline is viewed as condemnation. We have lost the ability to even civilly disagree about anything because the thought police will come in and say, Oh, no. Well, no, I think it's a bad idea for um, guns to be in a preschool. Oh, well, you know, whatever it is. We've lost the ability to be involved in any kind of civil. You're looking down on me. No, I'm telling you what's best for you. I'm not condemning you. There's discipline that's involved. So number two, uh, uh, kind of going on with this process, he talks about private and personal conversation. Secondly, he talks about correction that is ignored, continues with a small group in in verse 16. Not everyone will respond well to the, personal and private conversation. So the Bible says unless two or three um, fellow believers who are humble, gentle, willing, and godly. And the Bible says correction that is not ignored continues with a small group of people. Now, what's important here is the key is to keep whatever is going on as private as possible, as small as possible, for as long as possible. Again, what's the principle we're trying to do? We're not trying to talk about people behind their back. And so, if the personal conversation happens and you've got to go to the second stage, do it on principle. Be particular with how you handle that. Exhaust every opportunity to win someone back. And what I love about this idea of having some other people, they provide objectivity because if you've been sinned against, you are not objective, you're biased. So, having some other people provides objectivity. They make sure that both sides avoid misrepresentation. You know what happens if mama ain't happy? If mom ain't happy, the only story you hear is mama's story. And so this gets the kid's side of the story or the husband's side of the story. And it allows both sides to avoid misrepresentation. And then if things need to go to another level, these witnesses can be witnesses to what has happened and they can attest to how the controversy was handled. But ultimately, the end of unrepentance is disfellowshipping. In verse 17, it says, if they don't listen to the small group, there is some way that if they remain unrepentant, the entire church community must in some sense be made aware of the offense. And the issue is not shaming. It's not giving a rebel against God any nook, cranny, or crevice to hide in. It's so that God now has an entire army of people that are looking after this person to win them back because the goal is restoration. But the church can never restore someone who is unrepentant. For a church to restore someone who is unrepentant is to give up the game. It's to clear the board of the pieces. It doesn't make any sense. There is no truth. There is no accountability if we restore an unrepentant person. And the point here is that God loves us so much that he is willing to send an entire army to demonstrate his love and his mercy. The Bible says ultimately, if they uh, if they don't repent, that we are to treat them like a neighbor and not as a brother anymore. They have by their action they have removed themselves from this category and they have put themselves over here. So we sit there and we go, I don't like this. Join the club. I don't like it either. Because you know what most people want to do? Most people don't want to do step one. They don't even want to have the private conversation. They would rather come to the pastor and let the pastor have all their private conversations for them. I can't do that. Not my responsibility. You've got to deal with your stuff. And, and, and hopefully, you listen. <laughs> Make everybody's life a little bit easier. But we said, think, I like like the loving parts of the Bible, not this part. So if the I-77 bridge was out, and you're standing there, and you know if cars keep going, they're going to go off the cliff, they're going to crash, and they're die- they'll die. Are you going to stand idly by and watch it happen? absolutely not. You can't, uh, uh, you can't fathom, knowing it, that a dangerous situation is present, you can't fathom inactivity. But yet you do it in church all the time. You watch the glowing ember of fellowship begin to fade in people's lives. And you watch it because you've got a front row seat to someone walking away from Christ and you don't say anything. You wouldn't do that on the interstate if you knew that there was danger ahead. And so, they say, ah, you know, this is not really loving to talk about correction. Is it not? If you know that potentially someone's soul is at stake because they are proving that their love for sin is greater than their love for Christ ever was, the church is called to be tolerant, but it's not called to be indifferent. The church is called to be tolerant, but to a point, and that point is unrepentance. The church is called to be patient, but it's not called to be passive. Passive. Some of you go, uh, ah, I'm, I'm a little more pragmatic in nature. This just ain't gonna work. Oh, really? Story about a church. <clears throat> and uh, I know, uh, I check your Facebook accounts. I know a lot of you miss the Maury Povich show. You're, you're, wanting, you're wanting some of that Maury, you're wanting some Maury come on back because it was like a family reunion, you know, watching Maury, you know, hearing all these. Are there that many dysfunctional people in the world that his show ran as long as it did? Well, here's a Moripovich story, church, church edition. Uh, there's a church that likes to brag about how gracious and kind it is and how wide their mercy is and, and non-judgmental. The problem is what the church is most well-known for around the world is they have a young man who has now taken his father's wife for himself. Now, I'll, we've got young ones in the room. I'll let you kind of explain what that means later on. But it's not his mom, it's his stepmom. And she's not divorced from her husband, so she is still legally his stepmom. And the son is living with her. And the church is bragging about You see how kind and gracious we are? We are so kind and gracious that we celebrate how gracious we can be to a guy like this. Well, the missionary who established this church just happens to be passing through, and he is thunderstruck that the church is bragging about this. I mean, like, Shouldn't the church at least blush a little bit and say, well, you know, our hands are tied. We couldn't do anything about it. He goes, what are you doing? This is not glorifying God at all. And so what the apostle Paul tells the church at Corinth, he says, you skip point number one and you skip point number two. It's gross, it's public, it's well-known, and you have to deal with it immediately. So he tells the church, you hand this person over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh in order that his soul might be saved. He says, there's no this is not a private thing against you and this guy. This is a, it's just gross immorality, celebrated in the church. And Paul says, man, your church is at stake. You better deal with this. And he says, you disfellowship him. You go, wow. Here's the thing that's cool. 2 Corinthians chapter two. I'm not good at math, but I know two comes after one. So 2 Corinthians comes after 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians five, Paul says, you hand him over you be done with it, 2 Corinthians 2. Paul's writing back to the church of Corinth and he says, I am overwhelmed to hear the joyful sorrow that my my harsh letter brought because now this man has forsaken his sin and has come back to Christ. Therefore, church, remove your punishment from him lest it's too much and you crush him. But welcome him fully back into uh, brotherhood. So, you pragmatists out there, does it work? The only example that we have of it in the scripture says yes. Batting 100% right there. You know, batting batting 1,000. 100% success rate. Does that mean it's going to work every time? Nope. Have you ever had a conversation with a spouse or a loved one where you had a difference of opinion and you were wrong, but you just couldn't admit it? It's called human nature. How are you going to respond when somebody, somebody can come with the greatest humility, the most evident godliness, and the most gentle spirit and tell you something that you don't want to hear, and you don't hear it? At least you don't listen. So the responsibility that we have is to be like the mailman. The mailman doesn't mind if he's delivering me a Bass Pro catalog or a bill. It doesn't make any difference to him. His responsibility is to be faithful to deliver the message. We have no control over how people either will respond to the message of the gospel. We have no responsibility for how people will respond to the message of correction. The Bible says we're supposed to do it. And in order to make um, Jesus, for Jesus to make clear where he stands, our third and final point is that Jesus endorses loving and godly correction, verses 18 through 20. Jesus admits, man, listen, some of you, when we talk about that first point, like going to someone privately, uh, you know, personally and privately, like some of you are breaking out in hives already because like you are so non-confrontational. You're like, bro, seriously, like can I pay for like a mediator? No, it's supposed to be hard and don't do it through Facebook. Don't do it through a text message. Do it face to face. They need to see how hard it is for you to do it. They need to hear the pain in your voice. They need to understand what's happening. It makes it a whole lot easier. Here's, here's the deal, man. While it is hard, we don't solve the problem by disobeying Jesus. Because the last time I checked, these were his words in red in the Bible. And if we go, oh, it's so hard, we can't do it. Well, to make things really clear, failure to do this is a sin on the church's part. And it's a twofold sin. It's a failure to love God enough to obey, and it's a failure to love our brother enough to care. We let him go his way. And so Jesus legitimizes the process with three uh, simple statements. In verse 18, he promises his authority. Look at verse 18. He says, I assure you, Whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. This whole binding and loosing deals with the withholding or the bestowing of forgiveness. Now the truth is, like, we can forgive people, but God is the one who grants forgiveness of sins. Uh, he starts with his individual, if a brother sins against you, but when he gets to verse eighteen and he's talked about taking it to the church, verse eighteen, the you, I assure you, is more like y'all. It's plural. Whatever you all bind on earth is already bound in heaven. And whatever you all loose on earth is already loosed. You see, an individual can't discipline. Only the church can discipline. There's no mention of a pastor. There's no mention of deacons. It is the church that has to take sin seriously. And it's not like heaven is waiting around to figure out what we're going to do. It says whatever we bind will already have been bound. If we say, brother... If you can sin and not feel repentant, then you have no basis to believe that your sins are forgiven. If you can sin with impunity, that should scare you to death. And so he says, what we're doing is we're merely recognizing on earth what heaven's court has already decided. How many of you have ever memorized the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven you know what god's asking for when he talks about discipline he's asking for us to take the lord's prayer seriously he's asking for us to agree with him about the seriousness of sin and whatever you bind or loose on earth will already have been bound in heaven The problem is there are more churches that are more concerned with being kind than they are with being faithful, and that's a problem. And the truth is you don't need to make enemies out of those two things. You can discipline and be kind. I try to do it every time I discipline my kids. I don't do it well, but I want my kids to know that the chief reason that I discipline them is that I love them and that our family is important and that other people are important, so you need to respect other people. And you need to respect other people's property. And you need to respect other people's honor. So Jesus promises his authority. Whatever we decide has already been decided by heaven. So we need to agree with him. Verse 19, he promises, uh, he provides his support. Verse 19 says, again, I assure you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. Jesus takes the prerogative to speak for his dad. And he says that dad will support your prayerful decision. This is not something that we do coldly, callously, and legalistically. It's something that is done tearfully, and it's something that is done prayerfully. And Jesus is saying, hey, my Father will bless actions that are properly taken to reconcile believers to each other. You know what you can be assured of? As hard as it is to get involved in the process of reconciliation, and there is no reconciliation if the issue is not dealt with. As hard as that is, God backs his people up. If you do things by the book, it will not make it any easier. But God promises to be there with you. He promises to support. In verse 20, he makes this really clear to protect through his presence. Verse 20 is one of the most misabused scriptures in all of the New Testament. It says, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. Not I will be, I am. I'm there. And this is not a blanket promise for any prayer that you pray. You know, the Bible says you're supposed to pray in your prayer closet. So, like, this verse really stinks if you have a really good private prayer life. Because, like, Jesus doesn't promise to be with you in your prayer closet because there's not another person in the closet with you. You know, the, the point is, Jesus is with you when you pray. But the promise here is made specifically within the context of discipline. So all of you that have a little crocheted, you know, where two or three are gathered and we use it for every meeting that we got, listen... What what Jesus is talking about there is when the church is gathered for serious accountability among its members. So where two or three are gathered, if you agree on, on, two or three are gathered in my name, I am there with you. The prayer is specifically related to the responsibility for binding and loosing. That's a lot to say. And we live in... We live in a day and age that so relativizes truth. My fear is that even among the church, we don't have ears to hear what the Lord says. Oh, yeah, we love this book. We live it out. Except chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. You think I wanted to preach a sermon? Man, we got visitors here today. Why couldn't they come last week on the Seek the Lost One sermon? That's a great one. Next verse. How many of you, if I would have kind of skipped over verses 15 through 20, would have called me out on the carpet? Wimp. Chicken. Chicken. When we come to God's word, we come under it, not over it. The Bible should interpret us. We don't interpret the Bible. And friends, as difficult as this is to say, because listen, I... I get fired up when I have the chance to talk about God's word, not because I'm angry, but because His word is good. It's right. And I, I just, I see churches that don't take God's word seriously, and this is hard. But let me tell you, give you just two reasons why I think it is so vitally important. First one when a church disciplines Christians, she will disciple non-Christians more effectively. Think about that for a second. They both come from the same root, to discipline, to disciple. And when a church disciplines Christians, she disciples non-Christians better. Why? Because somebody comes into a church service and we're having a conversation about an adulterous man and we weep over his sin and we have pled with him to be restored both to Christ, his church, and to his bride. And ultimately, all of our efforts have failed. We have the responsibility to be faithful to Scripture and to say, from this day forward, when you see this man, you're not to treat him like a brother. You're to treat him like a neighbor. To pray earnestly for his repentance. And all God's people said, and we agree. And we don't do it with joy. We do it with an earnest seriousness. What have we just done for that person who walks in the door? They've learned that there might be 99 churches in our city that don't take sin seriously, but that Northside Baptist Church is not one of them. That we want to care for our members so much and that we will do the thing that is unpopular and certainly way uncool to love people enough to tell them what's best for them, not what they want to hear. You want to be a part of that kind of church? The answer is yes. (laughs) Because right now, if you're not involved in gross sin, now's the time to figure out where you want to be when you do get involved in something that you need to be called on the carpet on. Because nobody who's in the mess agrees with this. It's people who are walking by the Spirit and their life is relatively stable. Who have sound mind, sound heart. They go yes, please hold me accountable. If I ever do, if I'm a jerk, call me on it. So the church that disciplines Christians disciples non Christians more effectively. And this is a biggie. In order to fulfill the Great Commission, I hope that the passage is kind of written on your heart. In order to fulfill the Great Commission, <coughs> excuse me, we must teach people to obey the bible says we are to go to all nations baptizing them in the name of the father son and holy spirit and then it's not a period baptizing them in the name of the father son and holy spirit teaching them to obey all the things that i have commanded you he doesn't just say teaching he says you are teaching them to obey friends there's a world of difference between mere teaching and teaching to obey Teaching to obey requires discipline and accountability. It's just a whole heck of a lot easier to teach. To teach to obey, that's something else. And so our discipline, our our discipleship, our evangelism, our fulfillment of the Great Commission is at stake with how God will find us faithful in this area. Now, with all the v- vacation Bible school decorations out, I've kind of looked through the closets to see, you know, we've got to have, and some, somebody's going to come up to me after the service and say, oh, yeah, I know where it is. We've got to have a shepherd's staff. Anyone seen a shepherd's staff? It's like a giant question mark. <laughs> you never notice that? It's like a, a giant question mark, you know? And here's the thing. The sh- a shepherd would use the staff in a variety of ways. You know, he'd kind of pole fight with it, you know, do the jousting competition on gladiator. But more often than not, the crook of the shepherd's staff was for a sheep or a lamb, whatever, that had kind of slid down the side of a cliff. He could hook that around him and pull back the one that is straying. It was also a walking stick. He could use it for, you know, just kind of leaning on his staff. But there's something kind of interesting about the other end of the staff. You know what's on the other end of the crook? A point. It's not just a stick. It's got a point like a spear. Because sometimes you have to pull people back. Sometimes you've got to jab them in the side. Get back in line. It's like your kid. When your kid's queued up at carowinds and they start cutting the line, get back in line. Don't you need someone to tell you to do that sometimes? Get back in line. Oh, we we love the crook. We don't like the point. But listen, every man in here knows how sharp his wife's elbows are. Don't you laugh at that, you know? Don't you do that. Preacher's talking to you. I never see a husband elbow his wife. They're just more godly that way, I guess. And so, (laughs) here's the point, church. If we don't take sin seriously, where's the world going to learn it? TV, media, politicians, Hollywood? Not going to happen. The church has to take the Lord's commands seriously, even the hard ones. Let's pray. God, I, I will gladly admit my own hesitation to preach this message because I don't want it to sound like an issue of, you know, sin police or anger God, sin should break our hearts, and there is none of us that's above it. We should all long for and desire this kind of accountability. We should, should at our best, say, yes, God, give us a church that cares enough to even be involved in the difficult things of life. But God, you know how um, hard this is. You know our frames. You know our timidity. You know our cultural condition where there's nothing that's wrong anymore. We live, we're affirming that sin is a reality in a culture that is denied that sin even exists as a category. And so God, even by our very affirmation of sin, we stand against the tide of prevailing culture. God, may we find your glory in that. May we sense your power and your presence as we seek as failingly as we will implement it to be faithful to your word. God, we believe that faithfulness to you is more important than anything else in this world. God, I pray today that anyone, perhaps within the hearing of my voice, that needs to make things right with you will make today that they have their repentance. If they need to pray with a church leader, that they'd come forward during this next song, that we could encourage, that we could be rejoicing in winning back, not in condemning or stepping over, but that we are doing whatever we can to lay down our life for those for whom you died. God, help us, because we certainly need your strength for this endeavor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.